One of the things St. John uh, does masterfully, as does St. Teresa of Avila, is they both use Scripture extensively. You know, there's kind of this understanding that in the time of the Renaissance that Scripture was kind of not really looked at by Catholics, that we just didn't know it or we didn't really embrace it. And yet you see that St. John of the Cross, all through the ascent of Mount Carmel and his other writings, he is constantly quoting scripture. And those who are listening to him, they're being taught that scripture. And so it, it's, it's wonderful to see that the, the church in many different ways um, shared those scriptures with the people. Um, many of the people were illiterate, so many of them could not read. And so if they even had something like a Bible in their hands, they would not be able to do that. And so he gives some very rich presentations of the scriptures in the Ascent of Mount Carmel. And so I invite you to, to take that scripture page and just take one of those scriptures and just, you know, come in the chapel here and just to pray with it and just to allow that to, to just kind of be in you. And, and what is the Holy Spirit saying to you through this particular scripture? And then kind of connecting it to what St. John the Cross, how did he use it in the Ascent of Mount Carmel? And it can be a very rich, uh, very productive way of getting to know those scriptures in a, in a more familiar way and, and, and really getting the insights that St. John gives because he gives some marvelous insights to scripture. I mean, there's even preparing for this retreat and rereading the Ascent of Mount Carmel. I mean, I was just amazed at times uh, how brilliant he would bring out things in scripture that I have never seen before. And so it is one of the, his great uh, and many gifts. And so then on the other side, we have the uh, stanzas of the soul. So we're going to begin our talk with praying that. And so that's on this card here. And then the rest of the handouts, I re I'll refer to them as, as they come up in the talk. And uh, you're probably looking at some of them and saying, what is Father up to? And so, um, and you'll see, there's, a, there's a, a, a genius underneath this madness. So this is, a, I will reveal how I bring all of this together in a delightful way because St. John of the Cross, one of the things, he was very, very serious as a theologian, but he had a great sense of humor. And he was able to mix those two. And that's what we need to, to learn as well, is we need to learn to laugh but we also take our faith seriously. And, and, and St. John just shows us brilliantly how to do that. So we're going to go ahead and read together the stanzas of the soul. So we're, we're gonna read all eight of those together. It's, it's written as poetry, but it's also a prayer, um, much like our Liturgy of the Hours, um, has just kind of a nice meter flow to it. So. We'll all kind of try to listen to one another and, and, and say this together, okay? One dark night, fixed with love's urgent longings, ah, the sheer grace, I went out unseen 
my house being now all stilled, in darkness and secure, by the secret ladder disguised. Ah, the sheer grace, in darkness and concealment, my house being now all stilled. On that glad night, in secret, for no one saw me, nor did I look at anything with no other light or guide than the one that burned in my heart. This guided me more surely than the light of noon to where he was awaiting me, him I knew so well, there in a place where no one appeared. O guiding night, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that has united the lover with his beloved, transforming the beloved in her lover. Upon my flowering breast, which I kept holy for him alone, there he lay sleeping, and I caressing him, there in a breeze from the fanning cedars. When the breeze blew from the turret, as I parted his hair, it wounded my neck with its gentle hand, suspending all my senses. I abandoned and forgot myself, laying my face on my beloved. All things ceased. I went out from myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. St. John of the Cross, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So before we begin to look at any specific work of an author, it is always good to get some background on who that writer is. St. John of the Cross is one of those authors whom some can feel intimidated by because his writings are, they're composed at a theological level that, that even St. Teresa of Avila describes as far more advanced than anything that she composed. Though her writings, while not as reliant on a sophisticated theology, are still considered some of the greatest writings of the Carmelite order. And those of you that were in the past retreat where we studied her interior castle, um, that was just not a simple, straightforward uh, book. It had some real depth to it. And she herself uh, really is, I think, a better theologian than, than she recognized herself to be. St. John the Cross is described as a profound contemplative theologian and poet, co-founder, reformer, and busy administrator. We should take some assurance from this description as many of us who live in, but not of the world, often think that being a contemplative while at the same time dealing with all of our various responsibilities in the world is, is somehow a, a contradiction. And yet what we see in St. John of the Cross is someone who, while quite active in the world, you know, we, we heard that at the talk this morning at breakfast, you know, very, very involved and doing so many things in the world and yet able to live this very contemplative life as well. That gives us a lot of hope because if he was able to do that with all the responsibilities that he had, 
especially in bringing about the reforms of the Carmelite order, then it shows to us that we can do this as well, that none of us is too busy to be a contemplative. And so he was, you know, someone who, who practiced that art of contemplation, what we may call an active contemplation. And that is what you and I are called to be. So the biographical material on St. John is, it's somewhat sparse, uh, but what we do have gives us a keen insight into his writing style and even the subjects that he wrote on. He is given the title mystical doctor because he so brilliantly shows the way for those who want to experience God at that mystical level. Yet it is his writings on the dark night of the soul that he is best known for. And much of this writing will be the fruit of his many trials, sufferings, and difficulties that he experienced throughout his life, especially in his attempts to reform the male branch of the Carmelite order, which at times was very resistant to any and all reform. They liked the status quo. St. John of the Cross was born one day de Alvarez in 1542 in Fontevero, Spain. It'd be 24 miles from Avila. So we already see the Holy Spirit setting things up. The very birthplace, of course, of his future mentor, St. Teresa of Avila. His birth date was believed to be June 24th, the feast of the birth of St. John the Baptist, for whom he was named. A date that is also special for me as I was ordained on this feast day. So I often say it was a good thing I wasn't ordained on the beheading of St. John the Baptist. So <laughs> St. John's father, Gonzalo, came from a very wealthy family who were silk merchants. And his mother, Catalina, she was from a poor, humble background of weavers. Gonzalo's family was opposed to him marrying Catalina and basically disowned him. And so St. John the Cross, instead of being born into wealth and luxury, was born into poverty and hard work, something that would definitely be to his benefit later on. John's father, Gonzalo, died shortly after John was born, after a painful illness, which then deprived the family of what little money that they had. Appealing to Gonzalo's family for financial assistance, Catalina was rebuffed by all of them. So John, along with his two brothers, one of whom would die very young, and their mother lived in extreme poverty, making just enough money not to be completely destitute. Now living in Medina del Campo, <clears throat> John attended catechism school. This was somewhat like an orphanage where poor children were fed and clothed and they were given a basic education. John, as a part of his duties at the orphanage, was chosen to be acolyte, somewhat akin to our altar boys today, at a convent a duty that involved him helping in the sacristy for four or more hours a day. So we can see once again, the Holy Spirit forming him 
And along the way, John also learned the trade of carpenter, tailor, sculptor, and painter. So he already showed that he had many abilities and talents. <clears throat> at 17 years of age, he was allowed to work at a hospital and then was enrolled and was enrolled in the Jesuit College of Medina del Campo, where he would spend four years receiving a solid ed education in the humanities. The humanities at that time was grammar, rhetoric, Greek, Latin, and religion. So John was offered what we would call a full-ride scholarship to become a priest and to serve as a chaplain for the hospital. Yet John felt called to the religious life and decided on joining the Carmelite order in Medina del Campo in the year of 1563. A decision, little did he know, would change his life in ways he could never imagine. John continued his studies at the University of Salamanca, a school that had a superb reputation in Europe, as well as at the College of St. Andres, where he studied theology. John was ordained to the priesthood in the spring of 1567, but did not return to his hometown of Medina del Campo to celebrate his first mass in that place until the fall. This was providential. That delay brought about something wonderful because it was at this holy mass in the fall in his hometown that he met a Carmelite nun named Madre Teresa of Jesus. This meeting obviously arranged by the Holy Spirit says much about how you and I must always listen to and follow that Holy Spirit. Who does he want me to meet today? Whose path will I cross today? Why did he bring me to this retreat? What opportunities did I miss yesterday or the day before? Because I was not listening to the Holy Spirit. Listening to the Holy Spirit was something we shall see that both St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila had as a central tenant of their spiritual life. At the time of their meeting, St. Teresa of Avila was already moving ahead with her reforms of the women's convents or monasteries of the Carmelite order. She would eventually go on to found and reform over 28 monasteries. She had a very busy life as well, and yet she also lived as a contemplative. She was working on her second convent or monastery and was considering how to extend this reform to the friars, that is the male arm of the order. Friar John was put forth as a possible candidate to help her in this endeavor. John, having experienced the laxity among the Carmelite friars, at least to the degree of what he was looking for, was thinking of actually leaving the Carmelites at this time and joining the Carthusian order for more solitude and prayer. I think it's one of the reasons he did not like that university atmosphere because it was at times too secular. It was too removed from what he was really seeking and wanting. So the Carthusians, they are among the strictest of the religious orders in the church and they live in almost complete solitude, 
They live most of the day in their cell. And they only come together once in a while uh, as a community uh, for prayer and for meals. And so they do spend the majority of their time alone in their individual cell. And St. Teresa of Avila, she must have chosen her words quite well because she convinced Friar John not to leave. And she said, you must stay in what she called our lady's order. And so he decided that he would help her with the reform of the friars, but only if this were to happen soon. So that was his condition. <laughs> he was like, okay, I'll, I'll wait, I'll wait some time, but if this takes too long, then I am fleeing to the Carthusians. There's days, by the way, all parish priests think of fleeing to the Carthusians. Just, <laughs> there's those days, and I'm sure all of you have those days where you just want like, just the whole world to just go away for a while and just like, I just need uh, time and that peace and that quiet with the Lord. <clears throat> and so part of the reform was to return the, the Carmelites to a more contemplative approach um, because they had become more like a lot of the religious of the day. They're, they're very active and busy, but they, they did not um, have that that time of contemplation through the periods of the day, uh, the Carmelites, they would, they would go out and they'd all be doing different things in different places and maybe only gather together uh, later in the evening. And so he, he thought we need to have where we have definite times of the day where we have that contemplation. And, and that's kind of the model for you and I is to have those periods throughout our day where we have that contemplation. And then in between we have that that what we call that busyness, uh, our responsibilities, the different things that we're being called to do. So what he was trying to get the Carmelite order back to was called the primitive way. Now, Friar John could have saved himself much grief and heartache if he had joined the Carthusians, yet the Holy Spirit was speaking that day through St. Teresa of Avila. And Friar John heard that Holy Spirit loud and clear. And this is something that you and I have to, to be attentive to. Sometimes the Holy Spirit, you know, will speak to us through a person, you know, a family member or a friend, uh, a priest, a religious sister or brother. Uh, we just, we just have to be open because when the Holy Spirit does want to speak to us through someone, uh, we need to be ready to listen and, and to respond to what the Holy Spirit is asking. And, and that was definitely present in St. John of the cross. He, he had that openness, that willingness to just listen to and respond when he did hear that Holy Spirit loud and clear. So shortly thereafter, he spent time at one of the Carmelite uh, monasteries that had been reformed to learn more about how life in these monasteries was structured. And then after getting a clear understanding, a farmhouse that had been donated to St. Teresa was then given to Friar John as the first Carmelite monastery of the primitive rule. And starting out with only a few brothers, they had a routine that consisted of praying of the Psalms in common on average four hours a day, two hours of mental prayer and holy mass. And fasting was a common practice and their diet was to be absent of meat. 
Extreme poverty was lived, and they even went barefoot, giving them their name, discalced, meaning without shoes. The small group at the farmhouse quickly outgrew their dwelling, and they moved into a new one, where Friar John continued to be the novice master, teaching and forming the new monks and how to live the Carmelite life. It was not long after this that in 1571 that St. Teresa of Avila asked Friar John to become vicar and confessor at the monastery she was trying to tame. <clears throat> it was out of control. And he agreed, but it took him away from the efforts of continuing the reform of the friars. Though Teresa was a mentor to John, they, they were never on the level of close friends, uh, but she was definitely a mentor in his life. Um, and Friar John actually becomes her spiritual director, which is probably why they never had that real close friendship because to be an effective spiritual director, you, you can't be too close to the person that you're directing. Otherwise you, you, you lose your objectivity with them or you're afraid to challenge them or call them out on things that maybe you need to. So he becomes her spiritual director and it was through his guidance that St. Teresa achieved the heights of spiritual union with God, what we would call mystical union. There followed not long thereafter, the reforms of the Council of Trent, which would define the church up to our second Vatican council and which called for the reform of all religious orders. The divisions between the calced, the shoed, and the discalced, the shoeless Carmelites was furthered by politics inside and outside the church and much maneuvering on both sides to achieve their ends. It was a difficult time for Madre Teresa as she was known in the order and Friar John as they tried to hold on to the reforms that they had put into place. And they were trying to expand these reforms to the rest of the order. Friar John at one point had been physically carted off uh, to Medina and it was only through the papal nuncio that Friar John was eventually restored to his post at Madre Teresa's monastery. Now, shortly after this, the papal nuncio died, and then the opponents of Friar John kidnapped him. They brought him to a monastery in Calced and demanded that he renounce the reform. He would not. Friar John had what was called tenacity. Tenacity, I, I spoke a little bit of this on the, the previous retreat. It can be a virtue or a vice, depending on the circumstances. Tenacity, when, when you're holding on to the truth, somebody's saying, I want you to deny Jesus Christ. And you say, I will not deny Jesus Christ. Well, if you don't, we'll torture you, we'll even kill you. And you say, I will not deny Jesus Christ. I will not. You can do whatever you want to me. I will not deny him. That is tenacity as a virtue. Tenacity as a vice is uh, you need to change this particular way that you're doing something or some behavior, and you just say, no, you just have to accept me for who I am. This is it. This is all you get. <laughs> uh, nothing's changing. Um, if, you, if anything's going to change, it's going to be you. Uh, you know, it's that, that pride, that, that refusal to, to want to understand that Maybe we're being called in that situation to have some flexibility, to maybe listen a little bit more, to maybe come to some kind of compromise. Uh, and so 
that's where tenacity can get in our way is when we allow pride uh, to be the main thing. And so he does not renounce the reform. And it was at this point that the calloused Carmelite friars decided to lock John in a closet, which was six feet by 10 feet. It was a closet, it wasn't even a cell. There was no window. There was a, a small slit at the top of the wall. That was it. That would let a little bit of air go in and out. And so the room was freezing cold in the winter and it was scorching hot in the summer. So his own, his own Carmelite brothers are doing this. This is the, the Shude brothers, the Calist brothers, because they don't want the reform. <clears throat> they like things the way that they are. And so he was denied wearing his hood and scapular. His scapular, you know, went clear down. It was on the front and the back. You know, as Carmelites, we wear a smaller version or we wear the metal, which is what I wear. And so he's denied that. It's to humiliate him. It's just, you know, like stripping a soldier, you know, of all of his ribbons and everything else is a way of humiliating uh, Friar John. And they basically de declared him disgraced by the order. His only food was bread, sardines, and water. So I would think at the end of this, he didn't want to eat another sardine the rest of his life. Uh, that's all he was fed. To further humiliate him, they had him kneel in the middle of their dining hall to eat while the friars had their meal. So, so all of you can then take take turns uh, through each meal <laughs> of one of you kneel in the middle of the hall, you know, while the rest of us are eating in our comfortable chairs. Can you imagine what that was like for Fire John? I mean, it's just another way to humiliate him even further. And he, he accepted it. He did it without complaint. And to further his punishment, the friars would then take turns scourging him so as he's kneeling there, he has his back is bared. And one of the brothers stands there with, you know, it's this kind of a kind of a corded whip that they used uh, at that time, you know, for flagellation, uh, something that the church has definitely moved away from because uh, harming the body is not seen as uh, appropriate means for growing in grace. Um, this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are to care for it. We are not to abuse it. We are not to cause it harm. But one of the brothers would stand there and would whip him as the others were eating. And they would whip him as, as he was trying to eat. <clears throat> and the wounds that were caused from this were so deep that they would not heal for a very, very long time. And this went on for months. But Friar John would not renounce the reform. He said, this is from the Holy Spirit. This is from God. This is what he is calling our order to do. And he said, this is something that I will not renounce. So one has to ask at this point, how could these friars, these monks of the Carmelite order, justify treating a Carmelite brother in such harsh ways? Well, to some degree, one could say that they were practicing tough love but it had exceeded what one, would, what one would consider to be just. 
See, once we go beyond justice, if we're doing tough love, if we go beyond justice, then, then, then we're going too far. And, and they had, they most certainly had. Now it really became a test of wills. And if you thought you were gonna win in a test of wills against Friar John, you did not know of his character because he was determined. And all of this that they did to him, all he saw was, I get to suffer like Christ. Even when they're scourging him, he's thinking, he's, he's actually delighting in a way in that, saying, I get to suffer like you, Jesus. I never thought I would get this opportunity to suffer in this way for you. And he saw it more as, as, as kind of a badge of honor to, to be able to suffer like Christ. In fact, he thought, I'm not even worthy to suffer like you, Jesus, but thank you for allowing me to just be a part of your suffering, even if, if it is just a small part. And that's how he would see it. He would be like, this is nothing compared to the real suffering that Christ endured. And so in the end, all this did was increase his resolution to see that reform become successful. It just emboldened even more. And we see that often, you know, with the martyrs, uh, those that are trying to silence them or trying to keep their witness from, from happening publicly. We, we see the martyrs, you know, some of these like communist governments and such, you know, they sometimes didn't want to, to assassinate a person because they said, this person is going to be more dangerous uh, after they're dead than when they were alive because people are going to declare them a martyr. And, and then they're really going to, to just uh, be on fire with, with their convictions and, and defending their faith and, and, and really and truly even being willing to die for that gospel. So that's what we see is that this just emboldens John and those who are in favor of the reform, it strengthens them as well. <clears throat> so the Cal saw Friar John as a threat and the need to stop his reform of the order. And so it was crucial that the, the Cal's be able to live in the ways that they preferred. And they wanted to retain the positions of the power that they had within the order. See, it all comes down to that, doesn't it? It always comes down to that power. We're seeing that right now. You know, this this election is about, you know, who's, who's going to have the power and how much power and what are they going to do with that power? And the more power that you give to the government, uh, the less rights and freedom that you have and, you know, all of this stuff. Well, here we have, you know, in the 1500s, this whole thing about they want to hold on to their positions of power. And they know this reform that some of them are going to lose that power and they like the life they're living. It's kind of worldly and they're comfortable, but they're good with it. And they don't want to now live a life that requires penance and sacrifice and, and going about shoeless. Um, so they are definitely saying, you know, we gotta find a way to stop this guy. So there's a mixture of motives on the part of the calloused and why they need to prevent Friar John from succeeding in this reform. And it's important to note that Friar John's imprisonment very much reflected that of his namesake, St. John the Baptist. Isn't that wonderful how the Holy Spirit ties all that together? Because King Herod, you know, had St. John the Baptist imprisoned so that St. John the Baptist would stop 
his publicly calling out the king on his living in sin with his brother's wife. Because, and here we have a situation where the Jewish people considered St. John the Baptist to be a prophet. And that was something that King Herod feared. Though it later became a mute point because in the end, by his lust and bravado, he was forced to behead John the Baptist. So we see that Friar John, you know, took much consolation in that he was also getting to suffer in the same way of his namesake, who was imprisoned as well, and they tried to silence him. So Friar John must have take, taken much consolation in this, uh, but he would not be silenced. The Jewish leaders found out that St. John the Baptist was stronger and even more influential in death than he was in life. The Cows would find out the hard way that the reform of the order was only going to be strengthened by their imprisonment of Friar John as his resolve was 10 or 100 times greater after he escaped. It should be noted that during Friar John's imprisonment is when he composed many of his poems. And many of them speak of the dark night and mystical union. Friar John during his time in prison gained many insights, especially concerning deprivation and the dark night of the soul that would become the centerpiece of his spirituality. So you see how the Lord allowed Friar John to suffer, not only to draw him more deeply to the cross, but also to achieve a greater good. This is what we call the prevenient will of God. St. Francis has referred to this on several occasions, that God allows an evil, but is not the direct cause of it. Very important. And through this evil, the person will achieve much good. This is not to be, confu be confused with uh, the means justifying the end. When we do something evil in order to achieve a good end. So I'll, I'll go and rob a bank so I can give the money to charity. <laughs> well, that's never allowed in moral theology because we're the direct cause of the evil. So the greater good achieved by Friar John's suffering is to allow him to gain greater insights into how this suffering can be transformative. That suffering is not suffering for suffering's sake and to be avoided at all costs, even by the taking of one's own life, which is how the unbelieving world sees it. We're seeing that increased movement, you know, euthanasia, uh, they call it mercy killing, though it's anything but that. Um, this whole thing of, of the only way to, because suffering makes no sense, uh, then I just have to end it. And the thing is, is that Friar John saw that suffering can lead us all deeper in that union with God, if that suffering is understood correctly and the proper steps are taken in offering that suffering to God. See, to a world that doesn't believe, to a world that says, I don't believe in God, suffering makes no sense. None. It just seems cruel. And so the only goal is avoid it. And if it goes on for too long, end it. That is the secular world's approach.
Because without God, there is no real understanding of suffering and why there would be any good that could come from it. What Friar John gains during his imprisonment is similar to what St. Paul gained during his time of imprisonment. St. Paul, you know, was imprisoned over and over and over again. They kept locking him up every chance they got. And it was during St. Paul's imprisonment that he wrote at least four of his 13 letters. So we would not maybe have those four letters if God hadn't had St. Paul locked up for a while. So it was through the compassion of a new jailer that Friar John was able to finally make his escape. And this jailer not only provided Friar John with parchment and a pen to record his poetry, but also would let him out of the makeshift cell to walk around. Because until then, uh, Friar John, he had to stay inside that closet 24 hours a day. And this jailer said, well, I'm going to let him out. I'm going to let him walk around a little bit and and so it was during this time that Friar John began looking for a way to escape. So now that he was out of that closet, he was kind of looking around and seeing, okay, I'm going to find a way to get out of here. Because the Holy Spirit was telling him, what you've learned, you've learned. Now it's time to go. Now it's the next step. And so the Holy Spirit's going to provide that opportunity as well for him to escape so it's really nothing short of a miracle. On August 16th, 1578, Friar John was able to escape his cell. And some think through the aid of the jailer. He was never implicated, but he was highly suspected. And Friar John makes his way to the Discalced Carmelite nuns in Toledo, who hid him from the authorities. You know, law at that time forbade men such as soldiers from entering a convent. Uh, so it became a great hiding place for Friar John. And Friar John then went to the south of Spain, where he was out of the reach of authorities and was able to devote some time to restoring his health. The Discalced Friars then decided to make Friar John prior of the monastery in El Calvario. Unbeknownst to Friar John, those who were asking for this from the new nuncio were imprisoned. <laughs> And any friar who supported this was excommunicated. So you see how much politics there was in play at this time. So just because they're, they're wanting Friar John to be given this position, the, the papal nuncio at the time is like, those that even approached him about it and talked to him about it, he had him imprisoned. And then he told the rest of the brothers, any of you are supportive of this, you're excommunicated. So there was a lot of politics. And Friar John, not realizing that he was not to be the new prior, he didn't, he didn't even know all of this was going on. He just assumed his new office. He just stepped right into it. And then was also a spiritual director to some of the nuns nearby. So somehow the people knew didn't want this to happen, but the Holy Spirit made it happen. And the prioress of this convent she was not impressed by Friar John. And she complained to Madre Teresa about this. And this was the reply from Madre Teresa. I am really surprised, daughter, that you're complaining so unreasonably when you have Padre Fray John of the Cross with you, who is a divine, heavenly man. 
you should reflect that you have a great treasure in that holy man. And all those in the convent should see him and open their souls to him when they will see what great good they get and will find themselves to have made great progress in spirituality and perfection. For our Lord has given him a special grace for this. So this reminds me of a parishioner I had in my parish some years ago back in Wyoming, uh, who was a constant complainer and was constantly writing letters to the then current bishop, who so much so that he quickly grew tired of her. And he finally put a stop to this by writing her a very pointed and short letter. I have read your last letter complaining about your current priests. And here is my reply. It seems you want a priest according to your preference. That is not how the church works. (laughs) I just love this. Your time would be better spent thanking God that you have a resident priest when many parishes do not and praying for future vocations to the priesthood in our diocese. Sincerely yours in Christ, Bishop so-and-so. Yeah, it was one of the best letters ever. Now, I'm not going to even compare myself to the holiness of Friar John, but it is a good feeling when those in authority do come to the defense of those in ministry who at times are on the receiving end of constant endless complaints. Still at the same time, we recall how there was constant complaining against Jesus. And so we should never think that we are above him. Like, well, why, why do people, why do they get to complain about me? Uh, And then think, well, Jesus, they complain about you. They complain about you a lot. I have to think if Jesus was a parish priest, how many of these complainers would even accept him? It'd be interesting to see. Madre Teresa's words must have hit home because Madre Anna, the one who wrote the original letter of complaint against Friar John, soon discovered the treasure given to their convent in this holy priest. And later, Friar John would dedicate his commentary on the spiritual canticle to her. Isn't that amazing? Here you have this this Pyrus, first impression, I don't like you, I don't want you here, we don't need you, go away. (laughs) And then some years later, he is dedicating this beautiful writing, the spiritual canticle to her. That's how the Holy Spirit works. A good reminder that we should never sum up anyone solely on first impressions. Never do that. We should never do that. We're always more wrong than right. And that people are much more complex than we make them out to be. And that sometimes the Holy Spirit is sending someone into our life that we may not appreciate until much later. I know of situations where people... They started out enemies and they became best friends. So you never know. You never know how that Holy Spirit, how he is arranging things and doing things. Once again, I remember when I was a supervisor at a home for the developmentally developmentally challenged. As a supervisor, I tried always to find that, that middle way between being a complete tyrant and a totally lackadaisical boss, right? There's got to be that good place in the middle somewhere. And one of my employees was at the times a challenging personality. 
who for the most part did a good job, but was prone to complain. We like to complain as human beings, we really do. Um, and there's lots to complain about right now, isn't there? Boy, we, we could just complain about everything going on in politics and complain about everything about our country and our world and the church and just, you know, it just seems to be a natural thing for us like ducks in the water. Um, and we really have to make a concerted effort not to be that way. Um, later after some changes, uh, this employee was assigned to a new boss and he came to me several months later and he told me how I was a really good boss and how much he missed me. And he wished that I was still his boss. And if you knew this person, you would have been really shocked to hear these words coming out of his mouth. To thank. And so it was, it was good to be appreciated once again. Not that I was looking for that, but it was, it was a pleasant surprise. So let us try in this coming month to thank one person every day for the positive difference that they have made in our lives. It could be a grocery store clerk, it could be the postal worker, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, etc. Let us all try to have grateful hearts and share that gratitude. So one of the things I do in the month of November is every day I write one card to one person and I tell them thank you. And it could just be a variety of people. Every year I, I pick different people and just every day do that. Make November that, that month of Thanksgiving. You know, our, our mass is called that. The word Eucharist means Thanksgiving. It's to be the great prayer of Thanksgiving to God the Father for giving us his son. In 1593, Pope Clement VIII granted the discalced Carmelites independence from the Calst. Now they were an order in their own right. And what preceded this, of course, was some of the busiest years for Friar John as he continued to implement the reform and expand the order. In contrast to the earlier years, these years are years of relative calm. When Friar John was devoted to administrative tasks, he found much time still for prayer and writing as well. How he's able to balance all this is an important lesson for all of us, and we should uncover some of his secrets as we examine his book entitled The Ascent of Mount Carmel. Due to the internal politics of the Discalce Order, as you and I know, there are politics in everything in life. <laughs> yes, even the church. <laughs> in 1590, Friar John, after held, having held many different offices, I mean, he held numerable offices in the order, he was then elected to none. Many of the discalced were very upset about this, but Friar John took it all in stride. In fact, he writes, it is obvious that this is not evil or harmful, neither for me nor for anyone. It is in my favor since being freed and relieved from the care of souls, I can, if I want, and with God's help, enjoy peace, solitude, and the delightful fruit of forgetfulness of self and all things. So they're all upset that he hasn't got elevated to an even greater office. And he's saying, no, this is good. I like this. 
I like not having any office because he says, I finally get to maybe have a little bit more rest and have a little bit more of that quiet that I need in my life at this point. And so he sees it as a good thing. And he reassures his brothers, like, I haven't, I haven't been insulted by this. I have not in any way been put down by this. This is the Holy Spirit. See, he brings them back to that all the time. He's like, the Holy Spirit's the one who has put all this in place. So be content because the Holy Spirit knows what he is doing. So in 1591, Friar John was enjoying his solitude when a defamation campaign was conducted against him by another brother in the discalced order. But this campaign of hatred, of malice, never amounted to anything because Friar John had left this life and all its earthly cares for heaven. So there he is in his last days, and this brother has to go out and do this whole campaign against Friar John. You know, I think he kind of saw like his whole life, it it was just going to be a a series of these things. But you know what? He never let that get the better of him. Even as he realized he was growing closer to death and these things were being said of him and he didn't know whether his reputation was going to survive his death or not. He said, it doesn't matter. Why doesn't it matter? Because the one who really knows, knows. And that's all that matters. And so St. John really, in a profound way, gave a great example to his brothers. What a way to end his life. To have one last attempt made against his character and person when all he desired was to spend his last days on earth contemplating our Lord. But Friar John, he puts all this in perspective. He saw these attacks in comparison to what really matters is nothing more than the, the bleeding of a sheep. Friar John knew where he stood with our Lord and he knew how he would be judged by the one and the only one who truly knows our hearts. St. John the Cross famous phrase that in the evening of life, we will be judged by love alone. That reassured him. Because because he had, with God's grace, tried to love everyone, including his enemies, as best he could, and that the Lord would be merciful to him for the times that he had not loved as perfectly as him. I want to end with a stanza from the poem from the Ascent of Mount Carmel that we prayed at the beginning. I abandoned and forgot myself, laying my face on my beloved. All things ceased. I went out from myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.